farforum Zintir beni miller otadu Gireder dreylisig diyor ne geynizig Mir bin schön alt und greis und gro Gireder dreylisig diyor ne Ich bin schön alt und greis und groß. Welcome to Extra Sauce. My name is Chaim Cohn, and this is episode one. So, pretty much this podcast is going to be conversations. Just conversations that I have with friends, interesting people, and uh, something I've been meaning to do for a while, but just sort of pull the trigger on it. And um, sitting here with my friend Hanan Rose at his Paladin Studios. And uh, he's got a beautiful turntable here. And I brought in one of my favorite records, Cito Blarsky. And that was the Milner's Tredden, the Miller's Tears, sung by Mark Varshavsky, sung by Cito Blarsky. Last few months, there's been a lot of talk about storytelling. Good, bad, and different Everyone's kind of got an opinion, but I thought uh, it would be good to have like a more in-depth conversation around some of the more meat and potatoes stuff around what's the function and power of storytelling. Sometimes we kind of get lost in the thick of uh, an issue and lose sight of uh, maybe some of the bigger picture stuff, you know, trees for the forest or trees instead of the forest, whatever the expression is. Anyway, last week uh, I sat down with Rabbi Simon Jacobson and my friend uh, Menachem Posnansky uh, for a more in-depth conversation about storytelling, its function, its power, its uh, considerations around engaging public storytelling, storytelling at all. Uh, from the perspectives of Judaism, Hasidus, psychotherapy. Uh, Robbie Jacobson doesn't really need much of an introduction, but just for the heck of it, uh, he is the founder of the Meaningful Life Center, author of Toward a Meaningful Life, New York Times bestseller, and more recently, the founder of My Life, Hasidus Applied, it's a weekly uh, YouTube uh, live streaming series, questions and answers from the community. I'll post the uh, link to it in the description. Menachem Posnansky is a psychotherapist. He's the uh, director of The Living Room here in New York. And he's the co-author of Out of the Abyss, A Jewish Guide Through the Twelve Steps. Uh, together with R.E.A. Books Bayou. And so we discussed storytelling and its importance. And is its importance from a place of necessity or more like valuable opportunity? And maybe both. Uh, But there's a big difference between unfortunate necessity and life-affirming 
new opportunity. So I hope you enjoy. Just a little heads up. Uh, there's some Hebrew and Yiddish terms. Most were translated, but we may have missed a few. And uh, I'll get back on here when it's over and kind of uh, close it out. Hope you enjoy. Talk to you soon. All right, so let's get started. I was asked each of you to open up with a story, uh, and then I'll share one of my own. So start with uh, Robbie Jacobson. Thanks for doing this, by the way. My pleasure. Thank you. It's great to be here with Menachem and Yuchaim. It's an honor, and I think it's a great topic. I'll try to contribute when I can. So let me tell a story about a story. How about that? Perfect. So they say there was a custom that the Balshamta, the founder of the Hasidic movement, had. His custom was that before Rosh Hashanah every year, he would go to a particular place in the forest, and he would light a fire, and he would say certain prayers, praying for a blessed year for all the people. His student, Magad of Mizrich, continued the custom, but he didn't know how to light the fire. So he would go to the location and say the prayers. The next generation, the students of the Magad, they knew the location, but they didn't know how to light the fire. Neither did they know the prayers. So they would just go there and stand there. And the rest of us, we don't know how to light the fire, how to say the prayers, or even where the location is. So what do we do? We tell the story. I think it captures really the power of a story. That sometimes you may not have the experience itself, but the fact that you know about the experience, you can share it has been passed on from parents to children or from teachers to students. We're coming from Pesach now. It's all about a story. Parents, you shall tell a story. Haggadah means story. I find that to be an unbelievable power and something Jews have been doing from the beginning of time. They knew, besides immortalizing the experience and it's passed on, it just gives every generation and children something to hold on to. You know, our parents went through these difficulties. And in many ways, it's also a power of like, not just surviving, but really enduring and thriving through anything. Because the story is what keeps the, no pun intended, the storyline continues as we pass it on from generation to generation. That's my opening uh, take. Thank you. So would that be like, there's something that happens when we tell the story that we start noticing um, a theme or an arc that somehow that's something that particularly happens through the telling of stories that we uh, learn about ourselves. As a speaker, I can tell you, when you communicate, even if you share interesting thoughts, inspiring ideas, there's nothing like a story. The people's faces change when you tell a story. Because a story has that element, it could be me. It's happening. You know, an idea is a theory. It's abstract. When I say, okay, here's an idea that happened, let me tell you a story about it. And especially if it's a personal story, people right. say, ah, you know, that, that, it's like a story about me. That type of personalization is, I think, one tremendous element. It also has a credibility that it actually happened. It's not just some idea. Like someone said, a great idea, but did it happen? And that, uh, and there, I mean, there's so many other elements. I think it's very visceral at the end of the day. It's almost like your mother from the moment you're born, maybe even when you're in her womb, she's telling you stories. You know, she shares her own thoughts or whatever it may be. I just think it's a very profound form of communication, deeper right. than just a class or a discussion. So um, storytelling is something kind of um, 
profoundly important in my thinking because first of all, I spent a lot of time working with people in recovery programs and anyone who knows anything about the recovery programs, it's all about telling your story, passing on your story. It's the primary medium of passing on a message of hope and, um, and a message of recovery, but also as a, as a therapist, you know, narrative is such an important part of the therapeutic process. And it makes me think about storytelling and the way it's kind of evolved over time. And I think about stories as kind of like, um, you know, on the one hand, stories were used by all the cultures, all the religions to kind of pass down, pass down a sense of the journey and heritage of a people, journey and heritage of an ideology. Um, and then stories are also used in the way that you described it, like to pass on complex ideas that maybe wouldn't be captured, wouldn't be received in the same way that be. But, um, you know, something that changed perhaps like in the last 50 years is that stories, it was discovered the, the therapeutic value of telling your story and hearing stories. It was kind of, I guess, discovered by the world. I remember that, um, that the Jewish people were not acutely aware of it or was not completely in it, but the idea that individuals telling their stories um, really became like a you know part of our immediate culture, but also one of the fundamentally critical things for people to do is to know how to do, to know how to share their story, to have the freedom to share their story, the freedom to talk. And and one of the things that's occurred um, more recently, like the advent of social media, is that we've all become telling great tales, whether it's you know posting on Facebook. Or Taking pictures on Instagram or, or um, you know, or any of the other mediums that we utilize, we're all telling our stories all the time, and that's a new thing because the, the telling of tales was very limited to, to great speakers and great writers, and most people didn't have the opportunity to tell their story in the way they, they in the way they they um, they do now. And um, when you think about the storytelling, the kind of brings to mind two stories for me that I was kind of thinking about. One is the story of Viktor Frankl. Right? Well, I won't tell the whole, the whole story, but um, his you know, most momentous book, Man's Search for Meaning, which had this tremendous impact on my thinking. You know, one of the things I didn't realize right away when I read the book, and I've read it a lot of times, um, is um, that really, really, right, Viktor Frankl emerged out of, the, out of the Holocaust, a broken man, but not broken enough to have lost his humanity through the process of survival. Right? And that's what he talks about uh, in the book, how a person can face uh, adversity without losing their humanity. And, uh, and, and the only way that we can do that is by finding and identifying the meaning and purpose of what we're going through. And that's what helps us to maintain our humanity. And, and on first look, the book likes, looks like it's uh, an expression of ideas, an ideology, an instruction manual for us to, to, to save ourselves. But then it dawned on me after a period of time that it's really his story. It was his story, and the way that he told his story as a psychotherapist was to describe the psychological impact of going through the war. And that was his story. And that story saved him. He talks in the book about being in Auschwitz, being, being totally stripped away of, of everything, um, and, and knowing he didn't have anything, but they couldn't take himself away from him and that and that he imagined in his mind that he would stand in front of all of his colleagues 
after the war, and he'd be able to explain to them what it's like to be a concentration camp survivor. And the image of that, the image of that narrative that he built for himself is the, was, was what allowed him to have the purpose that carried him through the tragedy that he was walking through. So, so that narrative becomes like the critical, um, element to surviving the human condition, right? And, and because it's so important and because it's so available, it's something that I think is really worthwhile to kind of spend some time talking about. Um, not just to talk about how important it is, but to talk about like how it's appropriate to do, you know? Um, anyway, so these are my thoughts. Thanks. And I'm wondering, cause I know in, in the book, he writes, Victor Frankl, that he, some of the ideas that he shares vis-a-vis his school of logotherapy were ideas that he had before the war. And, and, um, and, and, uh, I wonder, supposing, you know, he wouldn't have been through the experience or written about his, his story and his experience if sharing those ideas would have been as effective or as widely recognized or read, right? Cause like, he's not sharing ideas anymore. He's sharing his actual story and what kept him alive. Right. Literally. And it went from theory to experience, which is so much more accessible. Um, and that may be like something that you, we, we've talked like the, the transition from surviving to something powerful, which is what writing our story, sharing our story can do. Change it from this is what happened to me to like, this is something that I now know and can share. There was once a chassid by the name of Peretz Muchkin. And they invited him to Fabreng at Yeshiva. And uh, for like a Yemen de Pagra, there's like a, a special day. And uh, he was Fabrenging, he's, you know, talking to these uh, Bachrim, and he starts saying a story. And one of the guys at the Fabreng said, the story is stated, is written in a book by the Friedrich Rebbe somewhat differently. And so Peretz stops and said, uh, why did you invite me here? You know, you could have uh, had one of the guys here who is familiar with the book stand on a chair, read it straight from a book, and uh, he'll probably have a stronger, louder voice than me. And you'd have it correctly from the book, exactly as it is. So obviously you invited me here because you want my experience. You want my lived experience of the story, not the facts of the story. So I love that story because for me, it goes to the core of what we're talking about, which is, is it the facts of the story that make the story or is it the narrative, the message? And there's a famous saying about Baal Shem Tov stories, which make up the bulk of Hasidic stories, that if you believe them all, because they're like, I mean, I'm sure if you lined up all the Baal Shem Tov stories there are, it probably would fit a few Baal Shem Tov lifetimes, and you wouldn't have had time to, like, eat or sleep or shower. So, like, obviously, they didn't all happen. So the, the, the saying is, if you believe them all, you're a fool, uh, but if you deny even one, then you're not because a heretic. And I would imagine the reason for that is because it's not about the actual 
did this happen or not isn't factual. The issue is, are you denying the message of the story? Are you denying the, the arc, the narrative of the story? Because clearly there's a message there that goes well beyond um, the facts of the story. And talking about this whole concept, there's something to be said for one of the easiest ways to kind of pass off the validity of something is to say, oh, it's state. It says it there, right? It's, it's written there. But it's like, okay, fine. But is it a lived experience? Is it real? Are you denying the story in exchange for the facts of the story? And uh, I, I think I heard once that the word time, one of the reasons the book is called Tanya is because, maybe Robbie Jacobson can clarify this, that there's a, a klipa that is called, that has the name Tanya um, that affects it says that Sadiqin, uh, that uh, they can somehow know something but not actually uh, live by it, or it's not a lived experience. And that was one of the reasons the author ever wrote the Book of Tanya, to combat that klipa as it exists within people. But to know something in the written form is not the same as a lived experience. So it says, but is that really how it is? Well, let's talk about the function first a little bit more in depth. Uh, Rabbi Jacobson, you started talking about more briefly the function of storytelling as you experience it yourself at speaking engagements. Any thoughts or stories that come to mind vis-a-vis the function of storytelling, particularly personal storytelling? Yeah, I think we can distinguish between personal and, let's say, collective. Menachem also referred to it. Collective would mean a community or a or even the Jewish people telling the story of our ancestors. You could say the whole Bible is a story. The Torah is a storybook. It's written in story form. You know, we know that the Torah is really also has a spiritual message, has inspirational messages. It's filled with laws, but it's all in story narrative form. Adam and Eve in the garden, and the Abraham, Sarah, and so on. So that would be more of a collective type of story telling, where we tell about our origins, our ancestry, our history. And then this personal storytelling is really, I mean, and I assume you mean that, whether a parent tells a child their life story or like what happened back in the old home, so to speak, or people just tell their personal story, as you mentioned in in therapy, or in other environments where they're sharing their inner story. I I honestly um, not, didn't always think of storytelling as therapeutic, per se, even though it is, because you know, it has many other functions. But the fact of the matter is, especially in our therapeutic day and age, it's very therapeutic because what happens is, you're number one, you're breaking your silence. So your secrets that may be toxic, somewhat freed, you feel freer, you don't have to carry it all. There's that element. Um, even if it's not necessarily telling a secret or some type of... Uh, uh, abuse or some negative experiences in one's life, some trauma, the mere fact that you share your story, I think, is also very validating. It's a validation tool. Because, you know, your story matters. And it's, so, it's, it's a worthy story to tell. And there's someone there ready to hear it. I think many people feel, my, my life doesn't matter, and therefore my story doesn't matter. Nobody wants to know. No one would care. Meaningless. I'm meaningless. I'm, you know, negligible. 
So I think it's a tremendous validation. You know, when someone says to you, tell me your story. Tell me what happened. Again, I'm not even necessarily talking about something sensitive or vulnerable. Obviously, it's amplified when it is personal and sensitive. Uh, because when you tell the story, you're not just talking theory. Like I know I do some counseling myself, and often people come to you. Is that talk about a story? There's a story with the Rebbe Marash. Fourth Chabad Rebbe. So on came to him and says to him, Rebbe, I have a very dear friend who's ashamed to come to you. So he sent me. And he did something really bad, and he wants a tikkun. He wants some way to repair, to heal. So he's asking me. He asked me to come in his place. So the Rebbe smiled and looked at him and said, why did he have to expose himself to you if he's ashamed? He could have come and told me that he has a friend. In other words, sometimes we're ashamed to say it's me. I always tell people, if you have difficulty, you can always speak about the third person. Say, I have a friend that happened with a friend. You know, if you're, it's a, it's an easier way to sometimes, but the fact of the matter is, it's based on a principle, which I think I should mention. In the Talmud, it says on the verse, if a person's heart is anxious, yasicheno. That's the word, yasicheno. And the Talmud asks, what means yasicheno? So one interpretation is yasicheno means to tell a story, sicha, in the word to tell. So if you're anxious, if you're nervous or something's bothering you, talk about it. Another interpretation is yasicheno comes from the word with a samach, hesachadas. Don't think about it. Move on. Distract yourself. So the same Rebbe Marash has a tremendous, he asks the question, it seems like a contradiction. Speaking about it is the diametric opposite of distracting yourself. And this is what he says. He said, when you speak, you release it, and then you can distract yourself. Instead of being consumed and it eating you up alive, it's a release. I thought that to be tremendous. Maybe the, the key to all real, real therapies, the ability to release your story. And by releasing it, in some way it frees you so you don't have to be, like it's not bottled up and and trapped within you. You know, because our our body does uh, knot up. We have knots over our life life stories and experiences. And we know today trauma is in your body. Just like exercise can help, breaking the silence can help. But I have to qualify, and I think it's something we spoke about outside of this uh, discussion. You mentioned it. One of our preliminary talks about this, that you have to also be careful because when people tell their impersonal story, it uh, could be a very vulnerable and raw moment and it has to be done with the right support and the right time because we also don't want a full assault on the human being's psyche. You know, I'll tell another story. A guy comes to the priest, a Jew, and he's confessing his sins and the priest says to him, I'm so taken by the fact that you finally recognize that I'm the person to come to confess your sins to. He says to the priest, don't take it personally. I'm telling everybody, you know? <laughs> so sometimes it goes overboard. Kola Marba could also go the other way. Right, right. You don't know when to stop talking. Yeah, he was talking about a, like a visa Indian that maybe... Was... <laughs> no, so the point is, that it has to be made. Now, there are people who have been silent so long that, uh, that they feel now they have the license to just not, not stop talking. But you have to know you have to be healthy and measured and not just to talk to get attention, and not just to talk because people are prodding you on. Remember, we live in a world where there are sensationalism, and there's it has to be in the right setting and the right sensitivity. So um, yeah, that's it. And that personal story is is a, is an unbelievable, powerful, powerful tool. You said a lot of a lot of good stuff, but I want to unpack it a bit. 
otherwise I'll forget. And uh, then spin it <laughs> you can always go to the video tape. Right. <laughs> okay, so that first of all, that thing about Hesach Hadas, I got to find out. I mean, you got to, yeah, I need to save that because one of the things that inspired this whole initiative for me was a lot of conversations that I've had over the years with people. <laughs> and just to be like transparent, the reason um, this whole conversation is like personally meaningful to me um, is because I would say if like seven, eight years ago this issue was being talked about, I would have been the one very uh, fear-oriented around this kind of thing. And I would have found a lot of supporting proof, be it from Yiddishkeit, from Hasidus, from wherever I could find it in order to support it. Uh, you know, my, my, my fear around it. Um, and I, and I read someone. Fear around speaking. Fear around speaking up and be it, forget public, but even between one another. One thing I noticed that people were talking about and critiquing the idea of public storytelling, but they were really talking about speaking at all. Speaking about anything sensitive. And so they used the fact that it was being broadcast or publicized as a reason to kind of poke holes at the validity of it. But they were really talking about um, just speaking up at all, even like one-on-one with a friend about anything remotely sensitive. And there's where I was like, that was me, you know? Um, and I mentioned that because one of the big things that supported me during the years, which was the majority of my life, where I was at a place of fear in terms of talking about anything related to like what's actually going on was this notion of Hesa Hadas, which is something that if we went, I mean, I'm speaking this, I, these ideas I, I believe to be applicable and, and, and relatable to anyone, but particularly within the Chabad community where these conversations are being, are, are have been had. Um, this idea of Hesa Hadas, which Literally, uh, loosely translated, um, yeah, loosely translated is, is like, uh, distracting yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ignoring it, avoiding it. Right, right. Often avoiding or neglect, right. So it was kind of like the cookie cutter, like whatever it was, if it was too sensitive, it was hesachadas. So my question. I can interject. Yeah. Obviously, there's hesachadas, healthy hesachadas, and unhealthy hesachadas. Like anything, healthy shame and unhealthy shame. Unhealthy is when you are just avoiding it because it's just uncomfortable and people don't want to talk about it. A healthy form is when you really can learn to release it and not become obsessed with it. I just wanted to... Yeah. Maybe that's what you're leading right. up to. Yeah. So, but I'm wondering, it would be kind of ironic if what was meant whether the people saying Hesach Hadas knew it or not, was talk about it. Um, and that brings us to the, what I wanted to ask. Talk about it to release it. Talk about That's it to release it. So not just to, to obsess. Where, where do we draw the line between sharing something, talking about something to release it, and then talking and sharing about something as empowering either for oneself or empowering for the listener? Like Because those are two very different things, right? I need to talk about something... For me, be it with a close friend or a therapist or whatever, but that's very different than I would imagine talking about it 
as a mode of giving something to others. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting you framed the question that way. I was kind of thinking about it in that, in that frame, like, like the benefit of personal storytelling kind of has two, like, um, separate benefits. One is the benefit it has for the listener and the other one is the benefit it has for the, for the teller. And I think today when you get into like the confusion around this area, Jacobson kind of pointed out a lot of the complications around that. And, some of, and, and I do want to get into that as well um, in terms of how I see that. But, but it's, it's, there's a sense of conflation between the benefit to the listener, the benefit to the, to the, to the teller, you know, you know, because you really want storytelling to be accomplishing both. If it's not accomplishing both, then it's, it's a, a bracha uh, levatali, you might say. So, so when you think about like, okay, so what's the benefit of personal storytelling to the listener? And I was kind of, this is how I was kind of framing it in my mind when I was thinking about this talk, um, this conversation. So the benefit to the teller is, there's, I think there's two really primary benefits to the teller that are really powerful. And I see this like expressed in the world of recovery all the time. And I, and I think that, that the rest of us have a lot to learn from it, which is it, the principle of identification, which is kind of like a, like a psycho babble kind of term, but it's really powerful, which is like that we as humans experience different things the same way. And when we find out that we experience different things the same way, there's a tremendous healing value in that. When I know that I'm not alone, even though my circumstances are the same. I couldn't, if I tried, describe to you what a beautiful sunset was if you never saw it before. But I've experienced a sunset, and you've experienced a sunset. And whether that sunset is in Jerusalem or New York City, we can connect on the beauty of the sunset because we both experienced it. And, and through that description of that event, it allows us to bond and connect in a really powerful way and to not feel so alone in the world in a really powerful way. And it helps us to understand parts of ourselves that maybe we don't. So that someone might share an experience that they had and their feelings about it. And that might give me, um, input and context for the, for a different experience that I had, but my feelings about it. And I learn about me and I learn about them and I, and I learn about life just from the tongue of personal story. The, the other thing that per, telling personal story does is that, is that, and this is very, very present in the, in the 12 step programs and the, like the second step, uh, which talks about, the development of, of the, of the faith that maybe I could get better, right? The first step of the 12 steps is this acknowledgement that like, I'm screwed. I'm, I'm done. You know, I'm in trouble. And, uh, and I don't have this figured out. And then as soon as you do that, you know, you would think that the next option must be, okay, so do something about it, take some action. But one of the really novel things that the steps does is it encourages you to, okay, now that you realize how bad things are, first you need to take some time and develop some faith that things can get better. And, and, um, I'll have to tell a story. I'll tell a story. Um, so one of the great stories in the, in the recovery literature is a story of Bill Wilson. His really his, his moment of clarity, which came, he was sitting in his kitchen after having Bill Wilson as the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous and the primary author of the big book of AA, which is the, the original text of the 12 steps. So he was, he was sitting, he was off of the relapse, just having come out of a hospital for the third time. Um, and the doctor basically had told his wife, if he goes back to drinking, he was done with. So he's sitting at his table alone. His wife is out at work and his friend calls him another drunk and asks if he could come over. And, um, and he's sure. Absolutely. 
And the guy comes over, but he's not drunk, the friend. He's totally sober. And uh, Ebby Thatcher was his name. And Ebby had gotten sober through this Christian program called the Oxford Group, which was one of the groups that influenced Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps, the development of the 12 Steps. So, and so Ebby Thatcher was part of that Oxford Group program, and he was a drunk, and he was terrible. He was very bad off. Um, and uh, and now he was sober. And uh, and Bill Bill Wilson was very agnostic minded. He was he was very questioning. He didn't take things at face value, and he was very suspect of religion. So when his friend told him that he had joined this Christian group, he didn't really want to take. He didn't really want to hear what he had to say. But what he said was, "Is that I couldn't argue with what was in front of me." Right? His agnosticism, his questioning, and his resistance dropped as soon as he saw a human in front of him that said that he knew was as bad as him, but had gotten had gotten better. And it wasn't so much the information that Ebby Thatcher provided for him that night that was most impactful. I think it was it was the fact that he couldn't argue with the human example in front of him. So the the telling of personal stories, the benefit to the listener, oftentimes is because you know, I mean. Particularly today, we have such harsh cells, shells. We're so scared to kind of open ourselves up, to really, really open ourselves up. Um, you talked about the, that idea of related to the, the the title of Tanya, you know, to really open ourselves up to allow things in, you know, because it's a scary world and we've been hurt. But when we see someone in front of us who says, "I know how you feel. I've been there myself. You can come out. You know, you can come with me." Right? The famous the 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 famous metaphor of the guy in the pit, right? And he's stuck in the pit and everyone's standing outside the pit and, and telling him what to do, how to get out of the pit. And he can't get out of the pit until somebody jumps in with him. And he says, what are you crazy? Are you, I'm stuck here. He's like, no, 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 you don't. It's okay. I've been here before. I know how to get out and I'll show you the way out. Right. And that's, and that's very, very powerful. So when you talk about personal storytelling in that context, it's immensely powerful. And, and Robert Jacobson mentioned like how the Torah is in there is, 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 a, is, a, is a narrative form, which means to me that, that, that Hashem, that God is a storyteller. He's the greatest storyteller. And that when we hone our ability to tell stories and do so in a sacred way, we're mimicking him. We're living in his shoes. Mm-hmm. We're walking in his way. Um, so that makes it very, very powerful and it makes it important. Um, and then, and then the benefits it has for the, for the tellers, you know, Jacobson did very ju- good justice to that. I, I don't know how much it could add more than just that. I mentioned um, Victor Frankel before, but the the therapeutic value of telling your story, oftentimes the most impactful one is is that when you see the impact it has on others, it gives you context to understand the meaningfulness and pur- purposefulness of your journey, right? which is one of the most powerful healing tools that a, that a person can have. That my life, that my challenges, that my struggles are not without meaning. And, and seeing that in a vacuum is very, very difficult. Seeing that, um, in others, seeing the, the impact of, on that, um, of that on others, um, has such healing value and is one of the greatest experiences that a person can have. Um, and that only is accomplished through telling of stories. Only accomplished in that way. When you tell people theoretical ideas, even if it's personal, it doesn't come along with that personal story. It doesn't have that effect on the, on the listener, but it doesn't have that effect on the teller either. Um, so that it infuses you with faith and trust and a sense of acceptance about your journey. Um, so that's kind of like, uh, how I think about that. So you're saying it's not just in the telling, then there's something to do with, okay. About two years ago, almost exactly. I shared my story in a significant way. 
um, at, at my shul in Prime Heights. Um, and there was kind of some, there was a lead up that I kind of want to share about as it relates to this topic. Maybe I'll do it right now. But one of the things I noticed was in writing it, uh, was almost just as powerful as sharing it. Because as I was writing it, I was both forced and gifted with the opportunity of noticing what they call in storytelling an arc. Right. So in my mind, I kind of had an idea of what my story was, but it wasn't until I sat down and started writing my story that I noticed that what I was conceptualizing in the past as maybe more of victim was a lot more like I was being led somewhere. There was a resolution that was at play from the get-go that I may have not been appreciating. And in the process of writing it, for the purpose of sharing it, whether I even shared it or not, it was extremely powerful to notice that. And they, they taught, and, and, you know, story by definition is made up of, to break it down to a lot more, but generally three components. There's exposition, setting the stage, giving context. Um, there's crisis. If there has to be crisis in order for it to be a story, there's nothing interesting about, um, a it's not really a story altogether about someone going to a store and he buys milk and they have the milk and it's not spoiled and he comes home and his wife is very happy. <laughs> um, so that's not a story. So the story is like he forgets to buy the milk and his wife, you know, hits him and then, you know, everything else. So there has to be a crisis, right? But there also has to be a resolution. And I may be avoiding noticing or appreciating the resolution. Um, until I actually sit down to form my story. And for the, by the same token, to do that at the wrong stage where I don't yet have resolution and I may be tempted to manufacture resolution that isn't really there would be just as detrimental as it would be powerful if, it, if, I, if I was in that position. I remember talking to my therapist at the time before doing it and I was like, what's interesting is I'm remembering it now and what led up to it was both a seemingly negative and a positive. Right? It was like something that happened that brought about a lot of emotions. And my way of dealing with it at the time was kind of scripting things in my head, which is not an unusual thing that I did from very young, where I was kind of like, I wouldn't say disassociating, but like watching it in the story form. And as I was talking about it, I was appreciating it. It was like not, it was, it was a positive experience. That is, I was like, um, I'm somehow grateful for all this, even while it's happening in front of my eyes, right? Like there's, uh, I wouldn't change it even if I could. And that's kind of what, what led me into like starting to write it and then thinking about sharing it and then sharing it publicly. So sometimes I, I find that in general, like we have that with Yiddish guide also. Where there's like, they talk about um, the chassidus came about because it was necessary, like the times required more. And so we needed the Baal Shem Tev, and then they needed the Alter the, Rebbe, the, the, the and they needed Chabad Chassidus. So like that's, on first glance, like a negative thing. But like, you read this Hadaris, they need it. On the other hand, it's a positive. Like we're coming closer to Yemei Samashiach, Yedias Hashem. So there's like, and maybe both are true, but maybe it's not. But fundamentally, which which is it? 
I would ask you that question. I want to get back to the, some other things, but like, yeah, that since that came up. Well, right. and here's, here's why I'm asking. The best I, I heard in terms of like supportive, not the best, but I, I, I often heard the, 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 the sentiment of, listen, what are you going to do? People in this day and age of social media, they never need to be telling everyone what's going on in their, in their, in their, uh, in their peckle. So it used to be people were healthier and they were able to be self-sufficient and they spoke about things maybe, maybe at home if they did that, but generally not. You were a healthy person. You kept things to yourself. You have to tell everybody. So never some people, they need it. Right. But is that really what it is? Is it like a, 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 um, a, uh, what do you call that? Like a necessary evil or is it like a positive? Meaning, maybe we're coming closer to a time we want to call about like Mashiach is closer to the feminine. There's more speech. We're talking about that vis-a-vis Pesach. Anyway, what do you, is, is is it connected to storytelling, or is it connected to, like you said, the revelation of Hasidic thought? That I'm using that as an example, where you can talk about the revelation of Hasidus as from a place of negative, like they needed more support because just the text oh, okay, alone I understand. wasn't doing I, the trick. I understand. Look, you know, in Judaism in general, there's no such thing as a negative that's just a negative. Even if we're challenged and we have a setback, at the end of the day, after the fact, it all has to be transformed into something positive. Because there is a, there's a bigger story. We don't know. We can call it divine choreography. We don't understand our lives. We live our lives from moment to moment. Very often you look back in your life and you say, ah, now it makes sense. Things I had no clue why it happened. Even negative things. And you really see that it sets you up for tremendous growth. The story of Purim is like that. If you lived at the time, you wouldn't even know that these events were connected. And then suddenly you look back. Hey, nine years passed. You know, from the beginning of the Megillah, Purim story to the end, it's nine years. And he happened to be, Ahasuerus happened to be the king. He happened to throw a party. Vashti happened to de- defy him. He happened to kill her. Mordechai happened to overhear. You know, it's all kinds of seemingly random. Then you connect the dots and the story emerges. I always found it to be extremely inspiring that your story is the same thing. It's unfolding as we speak. You don't know all your dots. You know what you know. Many of us don't even know our past in context. We look at our lives as fragmented. So I often ask people, tell me a thread of your life up till this point. And they say, well, say, I never thought of it that way. I don't know. My life is just a bunch of disjointed fragments. I said, no, there's no such thing. There's always a story. So looking at it from that perspective, no matter what happens to your life, there's always a positive. I bring it back to your question. Look, the fact of the matter is, and we know this, it's a sad fact, perhaps, but it's a real fact. People who've suffered, people who've gone through trauma, abuse, dysfunctionality, when they go through it and they grow through it, they reach a place of refinement and truth and clarity that most people who did not go through it will never, ever achieve because they weren't forced to. You know, your real resources only come out when you're in crisis, when you're traumatized. Now, it's painful and it could also, you know, not always have a happy ending. But if it, we're talking about what it's meant to be, the fact is the Talmud puts it this way. You don't see the power of the the olive until you press it. You press an olive, you have olive oil. Pressure does that to us. 
And we should all be blessed only with healthy pressure. But you show me success and excellence, and I'll show you pressure. There's no such thing as growing without pressure. Now, unfortunately, sometimes the pressure is of a negative sort. Living in a war zone, living in a home or environment, that's not exactly conducive, not nurturing. But seeing it through provides a story that can only have come through that darkness. I find it hard to say because I personally have been blessed. I've really not gone through the nightmares that many have. But I remember speaking once in South Africa to a group of, of people who lost their, lost their child. They wanted me to speak about this topic. Very hard to speak about because, thank God, I've never experienced it. And I told them I'm completely feel inadequate here. So I spoke about, you know, that I don't have the words and we don't know God's mysterious ways. And a woman came over to me and says, everything you said was very empowering, but one thing you don't, you, you got wrong. I do know why it happened, because I had to grow to where I am today. So I said to her, I said, you have a right to say that. I don't have a right to say that. So you said, and I realized that darkness is a very mysterious thing. It, for someone to get up and, you know, cocky about it and say, hey, I know why you had a difficult life, because it's going to make you a greater person. That's, that's not appropriate. But the truth is, for a person themselves to come and say, you know, twists and turns. I think I heard it over the weekend when we did the National Bruce Recovery Retreat. Some said, no, I wouldn't have it any other way. As difficult as it was, I would not want my life to have been different. I've heard that from a few people. I find it hard sometimes to imagine. Because I'd say, one second, if I had a choice, why would I choose such, um, such you know, sleepless nights and so much agony? But I guess there's a growth that comes out of it. So when we look at, as you put it, you read the Sadars, the darker generations. Yes, on one hand, it, you know, if you don't have such darkness, you don't need so much exertion and energy. But as you put it as well, it's also the dawn of messianic age. And that's why it's darkest before the dawn. They're what we call Haba Hatalia. They're interdependent. And in some ways, when a new paradigm has to emerge, there will be a moment of darkness, some type of vacuum, some type of setback. That catapults us to the next stage. That's the rule in the Kabbalistic Hasidic tradition. They call it yesh ayin yesh. You can't grow into a new entity from a previous identity unless you lose and shed the skin. Because if not, you just have an extension of that past. You need in some way to go through that confusion and frustration and even loss of self to achieve a greater sense of self. If not, you're just going to have more of the, the past. And that's the story. The story is, you know, look, look at the story of Passover. Look at the story of Purim. Every story. We began oppression, pain, genocide, terrible. You know, before that, we had good times, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. We go through Mitzrayim. Then it comes, the, it's called the Kor HaBazel, like a smelting pot. And then we come out and become a nation that's here standing thousands of years later. Look at the Holocaust. Talk about uh, Franco. Was the end of the story. In 1945, the story was not pleasant. It looked like it was over. And then, like the moon, reborn again, the renaissance of Jewish life in Israel, in Russia, in America, everywhere. We have our challenges. And I think all that fits in the rubric of a story. A story is a whole story. The story is not over. You have to remember, your life is where you are right now. The narrative continues. And you have to be humble, not try to control it, let it take hold, and you're part of writing the drama of your future chapters. I really think that's the key to, I, re, I just want to conclude one thing, another story. 
Uh, a woman lost her husband young age, has a few little children. She wrote me an email. She signs off. You now she's gone through real difficult. She says, at the end, all will be good. If it's not good, it means it's not the end. The story is not over yet. And I think those people that have that humility to see it through. You know, we live in the here and now. Give me, I want pleasure right now. Instant gratification. I want a pill. I want a magic button. You have to remember, life really emerges. And you're part of a story. See it through. It's not over. As dark as it is, there's another chapter coming. It's really humble. And even when it's very bright, be aware it's a evolving narrative. Oh. <clears throat> One of the interesting things he said was, you know, that Fenari uh, always reminds me, that, you know, things occur within a dialectic. I mean, they're in the sense that there's, there's always multiple truths occurring at the same time. And stories really capture this, which is like, like pain and suffering is the hairbringer of growth, but it's still pain and suffering. And, you know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. And I think that's like the great message of the journey of the Jewish people is our ability to kind of carry that message to the world that you can like both, we can sit in the Seder and eat matzah and matzah can be lachamoni, but it can also be lacham dominanusa, right? And it can be, we're eating mara and at the same time we're having arbicos or leaning. We're doing both things at the same time, right? Because that's what it requires to get through that. And the telling of the story is what kind of like makes that possible. The other thing that you said that really kind of jumped out at me was that because the Jewish people's journey has been so diverse in terms of like the different cultures that we've lived in, the different times that we've been in, our lives are different. So like the messages, if they weren't transmitted through story, they couldn't, you couldn't get that identification, that message, that human element, because we speak different languages. I don't speak the language of, of Jewish people that lived 500 years ago because the context that they lived in, the world that they lived in was such a different world. And that's because we don't live in the same country forever. Right? We're constantly going around. I mean, God willing, we should, but, right? But we're constantly moving around. So that it makes stories like, like the, the thing that has saved us, that has allowed us to transmit ideas from one culture to another culture, from one period in time in history, one period along the way to another period. So that we're carrying like this message to, to, for ourselves and then for, for our children, right? And it's only possible through that that transcendence of suffering and, 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 and overcoming um, everything that faces us and coming out on the other end of it and being the, being the, um, our life being the end, you know, the, you know, at the end of the movie where it says the end, you know, like that's not in a, not in a, um, not in a dark way or not in a, in a terrible way because there's never an end, right? That's like also one of the things we carry. But there's something beautiful about that, particularly like in an old movie where it's like I mean, a very I, script, the end, and then it's just like, it's the narrative has ended, even though there's more to go, but like, this is the whole story. You know, I just was thinking that in a way, the fact that our ancestors or even our parents and grandparents who went through the Holocaust, in a way, even if they went to their deaths, but they knew that the story is not over. Mm. They're passing something on. Mm. And I have no question that was part of how they endured. They realized that even if physically, right now, my life, God forbid, comes tragically to an end, but they pass on to the next generation, the baton, and the story will continue. Mm. I think it's a tremendous connection. I mean, look, we are the only nation that's a witness to history. Who tells the story in an unbroken chain like we do? You know? Yeah. So... A lot of good stuff. You mentioned 
how when that woman approached you after your speech, right? So that that was for her to appreciate that I know why it happened, right? It's not for us as a as a witness to suffering to say, oh, you know, maybe it's for this reason, right? It, the it, that there's something almost wrong about doing that, right? So that since it's my story, two things. One, I'm the one with the right to um, find the meaning in it. And two, that that is something that happens once I'm on the other side. So it's almost like a, a sacred space between that person and God. And really no one else has a right to come there right. and judge or interpret and so on. Like some people lost their faith in the Holocaust. Who are we to judge them? Some people gained their faith or are strengthened. This is a very sacred place. Anyone who suffered, I always see as being what we call a Kaddish, a sacred person. They went through the fire. And they have a different, very different cheshman, a very different accounting with God than someone who is not. Right. And yet that's, a, a, to me, it's a, you know, an awesome element of recognizing and, right. and seeing even pain as being sacred in a way. Yeah. And the example you mentioned about someone at the retreat saying, like, you know, if I had to rewrite my story, you know, I would include everything, all of it. A year ago or more, I was at a Ferenga in my house, and I kind of, as we were talking about this a lot, the Shalom Marco Rabashin had just been um, released, and one of the things he said, he came to 770, he says he, he says he now understands what the story that's told, I believe, of the altar of you, correct me if I'm wrong, where he said before going into jail, he would have given up anything in the world, maybe in the Frieda Grebbe, I don't know, it doesn't really matter, it's obviously the facts of the story are secondary, if best, you know, to the, the message of the story, right? So he said, I would give up anything to have not spent even one hour in jail. But then once he left, he said, I wouldn't give up, you know, an hour in jail for anything in the world. Something happened once he was on the other side that he wouldn't give up for anything. So I... I love that that whole idea where that um, there's something that happens once I'm on the other side that lets me find the meaning even in retrospect, right? And that I'm the one who, I'm the only one, because if it's my story, that has the right to do that. But if everyone is doing that subjectively, you got to wonder if there is some objective truth to the idea that there is meaning in suffering, which is another thing. But is that only something that could be done on the other side? Meaning to say, you said like while it was happening, they knew that there was something meaningful here, that and that itself kept them uh, strong and being able to survive through it. Um. That's a question I have. And the reason I, I raise it because it, you mentioned like it's a negative, but it is also a positive. It's, it's, it's both. It's the darkness before the dawn. You know, I caught the tail end or part of your uh, broadcast you had last night and you were talking about your reflections on going to Poway um, and, and spending Shabbos there. 
and you were talking about how all this really powerful things that happen and, and things you heard and pe- things that people shared as a result of what happened on Pesach. And you then mentioned, like, it, perhaps it's unfortunate that it takes suffering or tragedy to bring about such intense meaning, you know. And uh, you mentioned that the Maimurvat, the Tzavu, the Rebbe talks about how we're coming toward a time where we are no longer reliant on suffering to find identity. You know? So maybe there's something to be said for leaning in to the story, not from a place of like, because of something negative, I, here's an example, right? So I was at a, a wedding and at the wedding, I was having this conversation about this exact issue, right? And I said, sometimes you have people who hear something sad and like, that's the only thing they connect with. When I shared my story, like I spoke for about 50 minutes and within there, I mentioned something particularly traumatic, you know, being abused. Um, And I had a lot of different feedback at the end of it. And more than any type of feedback was, um, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I didn't like resent it, but it felt like you didn't really hear what I said. You know, that was like, I mentioned it, you know, kind of by passing, you know, because it's a part of my story, but that's not my story. My story is not my trauma. Trauma was, was something that brought me to my story. Um, and I get why people do that. I'm, that's, I don't have an issue with that, but like, is there, so I'm at this wedding, I'm talking about this issue, and I said, it would be as if we could say, you know, this is a really beautiful wedding, but is it so sad that we still need weddings? Is it so sad that we need marriage? It's like, the reason for marriage is to be miyach and yechidim, so you have male, you have female, and they come together for this unity that is supposed to be really from the beginning of time. Like, maybe we should say that. It's like, so sad, like, you know, um, it's really nice that two people who love each other get together and spend the rest of their life, but it would be so much better if we didn't really need this altogether. Like, if you continue that line of thinking, that's where I think it is the, like, eventual destination. Like, we could do that with everything. So, maybe, I don't know, but is uh, something that the Rebbe is alluding to in Ba'at the Saba that we're no longer uh, tethered to the suffering as the means of finding identity. And that we're no longer, the focus is no longer on whatever suffering that led into it. And we can now appreciate, so to speak, the story for the sake of the story. I'm no longer even differentiating between what brought it about. You know. um, what comes to mind, if I may, uh, uh, when you speak, is I just thought of this. You know, it's interesting. For the Jews especially, our enemies throughout history were never ourselves. They were outside people. We didn't ask for the Nazis. We didn't ask for the Bolsheviks 
or for the Crusades or for the pogroms or for the Inquisition. And very many of the um, traumas that we experience today in the 20 and 21st century after are self-imposed. I, mean, I don't mean self, person himself, but families hurting each other, human choices people make to hurt each other. Not some Nazi from the outside coming, but our own schools, our own homes, and so on and so forth. So I think about, you know, God gave us all these blessings. We don't have the enemies outside trying to kill us, and we kill ourselves in, 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 in these so-called comfortable, prosperous times. Mm. I just, yeah. it just and, struck and, me. And, yeah. I mean, the victims are still victims at somebody's hands, but, but nobody forced you to do it. This is not, like I said, it's not, a, so the, the Nazis have become ourselves, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wonder if the necessity to manufacture trauma, so to speak, in order to find identities, like, please, can someone come to kill me because I don't know who I am anymore, right? Is that impulse, is that need, somewhat driven by a lack of tapping into my identity, my story from a place of empowerment. Meaning, uh, it's a little dark, but we were talking uh, with a friend last Shabbos about like all the good that came about, like we're saying, about after this situation in Poway, right? And I was like, it's all great. Um, And Chabad is like, was put in, in the spotlight and a lot of beautiful things that are, it could be an opportunity for. I was like, wouldn't it be cool if it wasn't, if we didn't need like that kind of tragedy in order to like promote the message that it's really powerful. It'd be more than cool. Right. Right. It'd be also, uh, yeah. And, and I'm wondering if the, <laughs> the, it, the, a, a obstacle to that, to tapping into that from a place of empowerment is, this old wiring that we need suffering in order to, to find that as like the only means and is finding our story from a place of empowerment, perhaps an element in, in, in finding that, you know, uh, anyway. look, human nature is, I'd love to hear what Menachem has to say. Unfortunately, just like they used to say in fundraising, they still say it. There's no better fundraising than a crisis. Israel's in crisis, Jews are in crisis, people open up their pocketbooks. There's something about the pain principle that, that ignites people. And if you come and say, hey, it's great times, let's be as driven and a sense of urgency, people say, come back tomorrow. You know, they don't feel the compelling sense of urgency. I, to me, this is the greatest challenge in life. How do you wake someone up without hitting rock bottom or without some, something bothering them? What do you think about that million-dollar question? You know, it's funny. Uh, I find it funny. Um, a lot of times I get people coming over to me and saying, like, uh, they bless me that I should go out of, out of, out of, out of, out of business. You know, because <laughs> I'm in the business of, for the most part, working with people that are, that are struggling. Um, Though not all, all the time, and it's extremely meaningful when somebody comes in, let's say in my private, in my clinical practice, someone comes in not from a place of abject, like nothingness, just from the desire to expand their life or expand their you have to consciousness. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. And it's extremely, um, meaningful. 
And then in the recovery world, that happens a lot also, even though they've obviously come from a place of suffering and they're certainly to some degree compelled to do so because they're out of a fear that if I'm not moving forward, God forbid I could be moving back, but out of a, a true human desire to expand your spiritual awakening and your, you know, your, your, uh, consciousness. Um, so that does exist, but, it, but there's no doubt that it's like, obviously for the most part, uh, a field of reaction. And, and for a long time, I agreed with them. I agreed with that sentiment. Like I should go out of business. That'd be good. And then it dawned on me that there was inherent denial in that, that sentiment, which is, you know, there's, there's two types of ideas in my mind. There's lofty ideas that are true. And then there's, and this kind of goes along with that dialectic. And then there's like practical ideas on the ground. You know, on the one hand, I can hear, um, I can hear the kind of messages that you guys are talking about. The messages of the Rebbe, this hopeful message, this, you know, this, um, helicopter view of the world message. Like we're going to good places. Things are good. Look how good things are. And then on the other hand, there's like, we're very human and we have very human challenges. Um, I remember in graduate school, my, I had a, my best professor who challenged me most. Um, um, she wouldn't let any of the Jewish students off without on any of our papers that related to the Jewish community, without analyzing the impact of the Holocaust on our psyche. Not like logistical impact, but like on our psyche impact. And, and like that was a reality. That was a, a rea- as a, as a child, as a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, as, as a child of two parents who both grew up in, in the household of survivors, the Holocaust was something very, very present for me, but it was present for me in the sense of like uh, a story of suffering that we could look back on and remember, right? As opposed to something that we were living with, right? Um, and, and, in, and, in, and, and what I learned in that experience was that the Holocaust is very alive in my life and that's okay. And that's my journey because I grew up out of that. And that, and that's not a negative thing. That's not a negative thing. If anything, it's a, it's, I, I, I carry it with a sense of pride, right? If they were Kadoshim, and then I'm carrying that, my children are carrying that, then we're just as much in that, in that message. Right, right. So, so I think it's, and, and, and even though that might have the, the twinge of negativity, I think there's, there's ultimately a, an inherent positivity in that. Like, Part of why I think Chaim and Rabbi Jacobson, you made a very, very good point, which is like a little bit we're addicted to suffering, so we're imposing it upon ourselves. It's like genetically in our DNA, and that's an interesting idea. But maybe it's also because we refuse to acknowledge the fact that there's suffering there. It's so easy to distract ourselves with Nazis and not to look what's going on inside of ourselves. And now we don't have the distraction anymore, and all we have is ourselves. And all we have is ourselves, and we don't take care of ourselves you know, hurt people, hurt people, and sickness pours out of us, and it pours out of us in the, work, in the worst places, you know, and then it's just creating more toxicity and more toxicity. And all that it's going to take is just looking in the mirror and, and, and loving ourselves as we are in that mirror, like imperfect, not with the, you know, meaning to, to get out of the helicopter view of life and to look at like, you know, there's like that famous saying, don't miss the forest for all the trees, you know, and, 
And one of the uh, really impactful teachings that I learned was, you know, that like some of the context of that is like sometimes you got to get it up in the helicopter and see how beautiful the forest is, right? So then when you're down in the trees, you can keep in your mind the forest is really beautiful, right? But part of this, and this gets into storytelling and the journey, is like the journey in the forest is also beautiful. It's scary sometimes and it's nerve-wracking, but it's also beautiful, and, and particularly as you come out the other end. So I think it's a lot of that. And when I deny all that and I'm living in like, in like white knuckling state, then I'm, then I'm riddled with pain and anxiety and depression and it's uncomfortable. Um, is that? I'm done. You're done. Thank yeah. God. Uh, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> All right, thanks. Oh, gosh. Um, Kaim, one second. You, you, uh, you had your time. I know. I just, we're good friends, so I got to do that. <sighs> okay, so. You want a story? Let's talk a little bit more broadly about what are some of the concerns which are warranted as concerns. And uh, vis-a-vis sharing my story, be it in the company of a friend or more publicly, Certainly, like vis-a-vis, you know, media and social media and that kind of thing. Um, and then also to answer that other question, I forgot I even asked you. There's something else there. Uh, you forgot the question. You want me to remember it? <laughs> <laughs> what did I say? So, um, I, you're kind of touching on the the next topic that you wanted to talk about, which I'll, I guess I'll comment on the whole thing, maybe, and then that'll open the door if, if Jacobson wants to key into it. Which is like, what are the legitimate considerations and concerns around um, engaging the process of telling a personal story? Uh, obviously, you mentioned earlier that specific initiative that became um, publicly complicated in the Chabad community. Um this stuff is always hard because people tend to conflate things and they tend to overcomplicate things and oversimplify them at the same time. Which means, which what I mean by that is like, um, like sharing of your story has a lot of different potential consequences and needs to be taken into consideration in many ways. Like, first of all, you talked about someone going to a retreat and then sharing, um, like some very intense trauma in a public fashion. That was, you know, very intense. And I don't know the end, the end of that story. Um, but those sorts of disclosures, it's so critical that they happen in a contained and safe environment. It's like, it's surgery. You know, I've heard many times guys um, that I've worked with here in the living room where they'll have experiences like that and then they'll, and, and it's not necessarily in the right environment under the right circumstances and they, They'll say things like, I feel like I had open heart surgery and no one closed me up. Like I'm walking around with my chest open. You know, and that's what it feels like to have your trauma opened up. And, and that it can feel like that just getting up on a stage or getting up in a social environment and vomiting out some kind of like really sensational aspect of your story. Um, it can be really damaging for a person and it needs to be taken into great care, you know, and even within my field, like I, you know, I interact with trauma. Um, co- complex trauma all the time, but it's not something I specialize in, and I shy away from taking on responsibility for it, knowing that I'm not an expert. Just in the same way that a doctor who's an internist is not going to like, you know, unless he had to because of some kind of emergency, 
you know, start cutting open someone's chest and doing bypass surgery. It's just not something. So, so those things need to be taken with respect. The, the, other, the other question is like, is there a positive impact for other people? When it's done in the wrong way, is there a positive long-term impact for the person themselves, right? So there's A, like opening trauma and how complex that is and how cautious you need to be uh, in doing that. But then there's also like, like there's a certain element of like uh, social voyeurism that occurs and it's coming up more and more in our community. I encounter it all the time where like people are like wanting people to come and tell them sensational stories because it's, in some ways it becomes a good way to distract. You know, sometimes like I'll, you know, it's like uh, in a high school, we'll do a program, they'll bring in a speaker to speak, and then they'll bring in a kid to tell a story, and the kid will tell this sensational story. And everyone's excited, you know, everyone's super excited because they hear this crazy, sensational, exciting story, but no one does anything to change the issue that they made the, you know, event for. Because it's just, like, exciting. It's, like, it's so powerful, you know, but it's really just feeding off of, the pain and suffering and it's, and, and, and oftentimes what happens, it's a way for the, for people in the community to say, well, that's them and that's not me because I'm not that bad, you know, or I didn't have it like that. Right. So it, there's, there's, there's a certain element of that and that's complicated and it's less effective, but then it also has tremendous impact sometimes in the people that are doing the speaking. Sometimes they, they want to please, they want to do what people want them to do and they want to go and tell their story. And then there can be all sorts of negative consequences to that. The, the other thing, and this is, a, I think, a fair criticism, um, and not to give, you know, as a psychotherapist, I don't want to give people that are kind of very, very combatively against psychotherapy a good excuse, but there's truth to it. If I'm being intellectually honest, there's like a fair amount of narcissism that develops when people are in therapy for too long. They get very, very wrapped up in themselves, you know, and, and a good therapist takes, account, takes accountability for that. And like, tries to help the person not become so, gosh darn, self, self-centered and selfish and self-obsessed, right? Because you spend all your time thinking about yourself and that's naturally going to occur. That's just a, that's just a human reality. Now, now part of that is that like people in pain tend to be self-centered and self-obsessed and that tends to like feed around, um, really negative forms of egotism, right? Egot- we always associate egotism as like thinking I'm the best. And sometimes thinking about how terrible I am all the time is also another subtle form of egotism, right? So, right, they say that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Um, so, so, um, so anytime you're getting in that process, that's the point that I'm making where you're like sharing your story and telling your story, whether in a personal matter or in a personal private way or in a public forum, it's always like really important to check yourself. What's my motive here? What's going on here? Is this about the great I am? Is this about me kind of like exposing myself in public in some kind of way? I don't mean in a sexual way, obviously. I mean in an emotional way. Is there, you know, uh, is, is there something else going on here that's really not good for anybody? Right. And then, and then one of the things that occurs that I'll, that I'll mention is that there's almost like a competition that occurs. So people start manufacturing. And this is a real thing because this has been studied. Right. People manufacture trauma out of necessity because they want to keep up with the people around them. Not that all trauma is manufactured. Again, people use that fact as excuse to like deny traumas that occur and that's terrible. Right. But the truth is that you're in an environment where, you know, everyone's kind of like vomiting out all of their toxicity and then suddenly it's like you're trying to keep up with it and suddenly you're trying to like, and that's, that can be very, very complicated. So the point of what I'm saying is that, is that, that you need to respect um, what you're doing when you're, when you're, 
engaged in that process. And, and oftentimes, and there's a separation, by the way, between telling your story um, in a benign way without the kind of complications that come along with complex, continuous trauma and telling your story when it entails complex, continuous trauma. There's a separation between those two things. And we have to acknowledge that, right? Because, you know, when you're doing heart surgery, you need to do heart surgery. And when you're, you know, running the, you know, running, uh, taking a 5K run so you can strengthen your heart, that's good to take the strength in your heart. Like the, and those two things are not the same thing, right? So that always has to be taken, taken, taken into consideration. So all those are all kind of the thoughts that I had about, about this thing. Um, and then the final thing I'll say, this is one last thing, is that people oftentimes confuse um, the benefit of validating the intensity of an abnormal situation with normalizing an abnormal situation, right? Which means sometimes people need to talk about abnormal things occurring in their lives, right? But And, and that's important, and it's important to kind of validate that and to, have, to practice acceptance around that. But you really need to continue to realize that that's abnormal. And not to kind of, by sharing it so publicly, so often, you kind of like, normalize something that shouldn't be normalized, right? That's not, it's abnormal. And it's okay that it's abnormal because this goes back to the point that I was making. We're all human and we all have abnormalities and we all do weird stuff and weird stuff happens and, you know, we do silly, quirky things and we can be knuckleheads sometimes. That's all part of the human experience, but that doesn't mean I have to make it like it's okay. Like it's okay that it's not okay. You know, it's okay that I'm imperfect, right? But I don't have to make my imperfections not imperfections just because I can't live with them. And sometimes this kind of sharing can kind of do that and kind of drive it. That's why I make the point there. And, and, and you have to be cautious about that. Those are the kind of the considerations. Yeah. That I, that is that I, any positives? Well, we, well, we, we did, did positive for like an hour. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean positive in a public way. If, if, if it, I, I guess you're saying is if it doesn't have any of these concerns and it's really monitored and controlled and it's really... Yes, yeah, so I, I think it's, the, it's the, the person that's speaking is given the, the direction you know, um, and, and the people that are receiving it are receiving it in the right way. And the person that's giving it, it's giving it in the right way. Like in the 12 step program, that's a big thing. Like in 12 step meetings, you go to big, big 12 step meetings. There's a hundred people in the room, right? And people are getting up and they're sharing their story. Motive has a tremendous amount to do with this, right? Even when they're speaking, I was, even when you're speaking in a recovery environment, one of the things they try to help people develop in those environments, which is really powerful. And I'm not saying everyone does, does this perfectly, right? But is to like allow the story to flow through you. Don't speak from your mind, speak from your heart, right? And, and come at it from a place of humility. And one of the benefits of doing that is, first of all, the messages that people give over are very powerful because anytime someone's focused on being a channel, Right. It's very, very powerful. But one of the other things is that it, it kills a lot of this egocentric, ego, like, like, um, uh, toxic stuff because the person themselves is not thinking about, they're not busy thinking about this. They're like, how can I share a message of hope that's going to be beneficial right, to other yeah, people? Yeah. And, the, and the result changes. I mean, the outcome changes. Right. But you're right that when there's a motive and there's an underlying motive and there's, there's a, there's a, there's an agenda at play. Oftentimes, it creates that kind of Well, you have a good example, Rabbi Goldstein, Saul Goldstein, who came over from his power trauma, didn't focus at all on himself, and whatever he said was really about helping people. But at the same time, he had to share what happened to him in order for him to even have a message that was powerful. In every interview, he shares first and what happened to him. A a shooter approached him, shot his fingers. That, That... 
it's not for sensationalism and it's not his, but that is a necessary element. But nobody saw it as him telling a story. No, no. He saw it as about how he's rising to the occasion with that right. message. But he couldn't just start with that message. So that amount of his selfness was not Well, it was a different story. The, the story that, 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 that Rabbi Goldstein told was not the story of suffering. It was the story of putting yourself aside, right, and being there for your people in spite of the fact that you're overcoming. And that's a different type of story. Maybe that's the kind of story that you guys were talking about earlier, which is the story of transcendence over the story of, of suffering. And one of the points that I was trying to make earlier is that as we're kind of become such a uh, psychotherapeutic obsessed culture, we can get to become too obsessed with what's yeah. wrong with us, right? And, and, and it can be very, very toxic. Okay, so what I'm hearing uh, based on the... If a, an effective story is going to be inviting, right? Inviting in the way of identification and relating. Even if I don't have that exact story, I can relate to what you're, what the person is sharing in terms of the experience around the episode that they're sharing, right? Mm -hmm. And you shared about that from the perspective of, of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. So that and one thing I noticed was an old timer who, who was sharing how for decades he resisted acknowledging his alcoholism until finally he heard someone's story. And at the end of it, he just said, I still don't know if I'm alcoholic or not, but I know that whatever bit you bit me, right? Because it wasn't that specific or sensational where the guy was like, oh, well, you lived there and you had this set of parents and you had drank this type of booze, right? It was the stuff around it that was inviting. And where it could be disinviting or invite uh, manufacturing of trauma or like manufacturing crisis is where the focus is on sensationalism and, and drama, let's say, right? So now the story is not the stuff around the story that is inviting and many can relate to. It's instead the, the hype, so to speak. So now you have one of two things. One, it's disinviting to people who don't necessarily share that story. And two, it invites people who want in on that to feel the need to like manufacture that kind of thing. Right. Would that would be yeah, a fair? Yeah. So. Okay. We're short on time and I would love to do this like a bunch of other things, but let's get to a closing story and or message. Um, start Robert Jacobson. Uh, we spoke about a lot of different things. So is there any message or something you'd like to impart. The, the Balatani, Rabbi Shneir Zahn of the Adi, once said that when you're asked a question and you don't have an answer, tell a story. And if that doesn't work, sing a song. So, and I've, I've used this advice many times because there's speaking, there's a story, and there's a song. What's the Hayyamim that says the function of story and then a nigan? Yeah, so it tell, tells you that a story touches a different dimension, a different core than just a talk, a lecture. It touches a part of us that resonates with us. You know, the best would be a story that sounds like a song, mm -hmm. obviously, because it touches a certain part of our inner, uh, inner consciousness, our inner psyche, that's more than just an idea. And we talked about that. An experience. 
to share something. An idea is an idea. Idea is like what uh, Rabbeinu Tam writes, that words from the heart enter the heart. Words that come out of your mind or your, or your mouth go into one ear and come out the other. And a story has that element of touching your heart because it's a real story. I remember when I wrote Toward a Meaningful Life, my literary agent sent me up to speak with the publisher. Her name was Liz Purley. And he says, 15 minutes with her is like 20 years of experience. She was one of the preeminent experts on spiritual books. I ended up spending two and a half hours with her. How much does that add up to be? Like 100 years or something. And I remember one thing she told me, she said, among other things, add more stories in your, in your book. More stories, more stories. I said, why? And she told me, when a person reads a book, it's like someone swimming in new waters. Even if they're a great swimmer, they always have a certain caution and weariness because they don't know these new waters. So they look for signposts, like land, uh, what do they call them, Bob, boys. Uh, they call them, um, you look for things you recognize. And the story is something recognizable. So they'll swim through your text to get to the next story. That was the way she put it. Mm. And then I can tell you, once I wrote the book, I did what she said. People used to tell me, I love the text that connected one story to the next. And they didn't realize I wrote the text first and I wrote the stories last. Mm. But it's the stories that you're most comfortable with. Because you see, you're like me. Whereas the text is more of an idea. Do I, do I identify with it? Do I relate to it? Do I agree with it? So stories have that, almost today they call mirror neurons. You know, mirror neurons is like you see somebody about to close the door on their finger. And even though they may not notice it, you'll cringe because you identify with them. So there's a thing called mirror neurons. We mirror other people's experiences. And the story is the ultimate mirror neuron. And in that sense, it's a tremendous tool. But I think with the qualifications, you have to remember, yes, self-indulgence and narcissism or unhealthy ways of expressing yourself is a pitfall that we have to be wary of. And it has to, everything should be done with humility, with sensitivity, and under the right guidance. Thanks. Uh, um, I was thinking about saying something else, but what I think about now is that you know, people have a lot of preoccupation with like social media and some of the ills of it. Texting is something people have a hard time with. So all oh, people used to talk on the phone and, you know, and they, know they only text and, you know, if they tweet, they have to, um, confine their thoughts to very small amounts. Um, and as if that's a negative thing. And, and then it dawned on me once, uh, my father showed me a, a stack of letters that he had. It's like almost all that he has left of his mother passed away when he was very young. He has letters that she wrote back and forth to her family. He was living in Israel and they were living here. Beautiful letters, like really sweet Yiddish. It's really, really beautiful. And, um, and it dawned on me that like they didn't talk on the phone. And if they had talked on the phone, they probably wouldn't have been the communication that occurred in the letters and the beautiful letters. Um, and so that communication is always changing and evolving over time. And the current iteration of communication that we're in is like very, very different than anything it was. And what I, when it was when I was growing up or anything different. And part of that iteration is like, um, like the telling of stories, like I said earlier, like, like everything that we're doing there is the telling of stories and everybody's telling stories. Everybody's a storyteller now, not just, it's not just limited to the, into, into the, uh, to the, uh, to the elite, right? The, the, the sacred act of storytelling has been given. The universe has given it to every person. 
given the ability for every person to be a storyteller. And, and, and God is a storyteller. Hashem is a storyteller. And when we tell stories, um, we're doing a sacred act. And like anything we, that we do is sacred. If you don't treat it uh, with respect and a certain sense of reverence, you profane it. And it can cause complica- complications. Um, but if you do treat it with respect, if you own the power that it carries, then, 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 then you, you not only sanctify your life, you sanctify everyone around you. And I think that, that, that that's, well, that's the responsibility that we all carry in kind of in a closing kind of like, that's like how I think about it. Like, okay, so what are we doing to move this forward? How are we passing this on? How are we going to do it right? Not what are they doing wrong? Right. So that's kind of the thing, the thoughts that I have about that. Thanks. All right. I have some closing thoughts of my own and then quick story. So like you said, like this is not, we're all, we're, we're constantly telling stories. And I was talking to a friend last week and we're talking about taking a step further. Like really, I'm always telling a story. We're all telling ourselves stories constantly in the confines of our own minds. Like I'm my perceiving the present through narrative, through the narrative of my past, through the narrative of my historical background, right? And that can either be an empowering one or a disempowering one. And so often it is disempowering. Like I'm experiencing this and based on my narrative, it automatically means this. And, or it can be in an empowering way, you know? Um, so I can do that just within myself. This isn't about public storytelling necessarily. This is about storytelling first and foremost for myself within my own mind. And then it's like with someone I'm close to, like, how is it possible that we can have friends that I spend so much time with and yet they don't know my story and how many of us are living that way? Um, so I don't think this is about like, jumping on a stage in theater or something or necessarily that it could mean that. And that is like very powerful and, and unique and like, but it not necessarily like, and, and it's awful that I think sometimes people are using one thing as like this false binary, like we find a pitfall in that. So now I'm going to avoid like even just being honest with myself or close friend. And that's really, what I noticed happened a number of times and that was kind of gave me the impulse to like seize this opportunity because when a conversation like is happening, you know, in the week of a certain event, you could say, all right, it's, there's a lot of hype around it. But then when it's like four or five months after the, clearly there's a nerve that's being touched that deserves some addressing. And I hope we did that to some extent tonight. And the message I have is, is, is this, I mentioned this, like stories that I grew up with from, from these person tapes and two of them that stuck with me that I think of often as it relates to this. One, some, uh, and again, I'm sure I'm going to get details wrong, but it obviously doesn't remember, it really matter because we're not talking facts, we're talking narrative. And, uh, so a non-Chassid, uh, approached the Chassid once and said, why do you guys spend so much time davening? You know, you're s- s- spending time idle, to, so to speak, not learning. It's Bithel Terra. That's one. Number two, you sit around davening for an hour and a half, two hours. You're like, you're going to be prone and vulnerable to machshavazars, to foreign thoughts. So like, wouldn't it be better to like spend a half hour, do like whatever you have to say, and then move on with your day and learn Terra and everything. And you wouldn't be vulnerable to like machshavazars and your Yitzhahara. 
So the Chassid told him, like, you would be right if, if the narrative of the example was one of a Reitzeach coming after you on the street. So you can't, like, be vulnerable. You need to, like, outrun him. He said, but that's not what's going on. It's like, I'm on a train with my Nefesh Bahamas. I'm on the train with someone who's coming after me. There's no getting off. We're on the same train and we're both there. I can't, there's nowhere to outrun it. I have to take my time and like do this strategically with him. That is to say, this whole notion of like Hesa Hadas, like we were talking about earlier. And so much of this conversation is wrapped up in that. There are some things that we're being gifted and that we have like a responsibility to face, but also like an opportunity to face. And we can't outrun it. Neither should we want to, because there's like a lot of gifts in, in leaning into it and talking about it, starting with myself and then with people who I'm safe with. And then I can just keep on going outward from there. And as far as the challenges go, the other story that keeps coming to mind is this one that the Rebbe often repeated, which is the Chassid from, uh, the, the Rebbe Marash who would, would deliver chassidus at different towns. And, uh, he once said, said the Rebbe, I, I think I should stop because I feel like what happens is I share and then it goes to my head and I, I become egotistical and self obsessed and maybe even narcissistic. I don't know. And, uh, maybe I should stop because obviously like I said this, that's like a big part of like not becoming a yish, uh, you know, ego. And the Rebbe told him in Yiddish, you should become like an onion. But still say chassidus. And I often use that story in the past as a license to not deal with myself and certainly not to talk about anything. So that you just do things and then don't worry about the consequences, right? That's how I, you know, use that story. And which was in retrospect, like I, a glaring example of how I find whatever I'm looking for, no matter what. You know, the message I'm looking for. Now I understand the story to mean what I believe it always meant, which is don't worry about the impact it may have. <clears throat> like, you don't have to live in fear. Like, we're, we're stronger as individuals than we think, and the people around us are stronger than we think. And they'll, they'll hear it. And, uh, part of the, like, resistance is often in the form of no one will understand me. So just keep my mouth shut and isolate. But to trust my fellows more. And to trust myself more. And, uh, and as far as, like, a civil society, like, don't get so obsessed with yourself that you become too selfish to share yourself. Like, if you're sharing, like we talked about, from a place of invitation and not sensation you're giving something you're sharing something don't worry about the ego don't worry about the narcissism sharing is selfless when done correctly and um so that's my message like uh for myself and, and anyone who's interested in this sort of conversation to like not get too caught up in the possible negative ramifications and impacts and to tap into the, the positive ones, which is we're all pretty much dealing with similar stuff. We might as well talk to each other. Oh, that was nice.
you know, I was driving last night uh, with a friend of mine, and he was telling me a story about this business venture and another business venture that went bad. And and I was, uh, at the end of it, I said something just, you know, offhanded and uh, something that I catch myself saying often. We, we hear all the time. So, well, you know, at least you have a good story to tell. And I was just thinking as I was listening to this, uh, if maybe that's more than just a little thing we say. And maybe not that having a good story to tell is the consolation prize for just a crappy thing that once happened. But what if it's the point of it all? What if what could at some point be perceived as needless suffering is actually our story being born? And I saw this uh, beautiful quote from Elie Wiesel recently that uh, God created man because he loves stories. And when we tap into our stories, be it writing our stories for ourselves, reframing our stories within our own minds, sharing our stories with a close friend, we affirm the arc of our life, the the meaning within our suffering. Not that we're just excusing suffering in any way, but seeking and finding the genuine meaning that ought to be found in it. And that's a a life-affirming thing to do. It's a way we find our identity from a proactive place instead of kind of relying on external stimulus in the form of crisis or whatever to uh, tell us who we are. And I think it's really appropriate. A lot of the themes that in this conversation were around uh, Pesach, a lot of uh, ideas inherent in Pesach and the Seder and the Haggadah about storytelling. And when we talk about the Haggadah, it says, Praise be the person who, who, who expounds on the, on the miracles, on the stories. And in keeping with the uh, Pesach theme, here is Shlomo Kalbach singing his adaptation of the Yiddish version of Echad mi Idea. Got to say. Me, 